The Game Podcast is brought to you this week by Inked Gaming. If you're looking for a one-stop shop for gaming gifts this season, we suggest heading over to InkedGaming.com. Starting November 22nd, Ink Gaming will be running their Black Friday sale, featuring playmats, dice bags, PC gaming mouse pads, and more. Stitch custom playmats and mouse pads are also now available. Your game, your style, Inked Gaming. Welcome to episode 103 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian, the Scrap Trawler Gottlieb. What's going on, man? Hello. Welcome back from the Pro Tour. I'm very happy to have you back. I've been sitting here scrap trawling through all the information and data and spreadsheets and deck lists and just anything I can get my hands on, uh, which is coming from a lot of places. I've seen like really good Reddit posts analyzing the PT. People have been sending me spreadsheets on Twitter and there's a whole bunch of good discussion going on. And I am ripping through it all, trying to get to the bottom of this crazy, crazy metagame. Well, you're wasting your time. You know that, right? Because I already broke it. That's convenient for both me and our listeners. So I, I look forward to getting to that point as we move through this cast. Well, you know, broke it with Goblin Chain Whirler and... I, I don't know. So I played Mono Red at the Pro Tour. I did not win a lot of rounds in Limited. My head was kind of elsewhere and played pretty bad and whatnot, but I uh, ended up not playing against any of the Boros token deck, and it, it was still fine. I still went 4-1, and one, and looking back, I am firmly convinced that my one loss was to just a straight-up punt. So I think Mono Red is great. And even following the results of the Pro Tour, I think it just gets better and better. And a lot of that is to do with the specific, maybe not technology, but certainly like technology in the the sideboarding plans that we had. Yeah, I think we, if we're going to talk about your deck list, and I definitely want to do so, we got to start there. You know, obviously people will have access to it. I know you're going to write an article about it, but real quick, give us like a, a thousand foot overview of your deck list. What's different about your mono red list from everyone else's list? What'd you do in preparation for this pro tour that made you so pleased with this deck list that you finally settled on? 22 mountains, 20 creatures, uh, zero of which are rekindling Phoenix, four experimental frenzy, four lava coil main deck, one wizard's lightning, one risk factor and the sideboard was a mix of banefire fiery cannonade treasure map more risk factors dire fleet daredevil and did i say fight with fire that one no you didn't but good to know so so that definitely sounds different than what most mono red lists were doing in the lead up to this tournament slightly and i i think the important thing was just basically figuring out what you're supposed to be doing in the golgari and is it matchups because Experimental Frenzy is this card that has been super hyped and is obviously very powerful, right? But it just is so bad against those two decks to the point where I'm not even sure that it's a main deck card at this point. And the deck that won the Magic Online PTQ, uh, I think it was either Saturday or Sunday of last weekend, also during the Pro Tour, was Mono Red with four Risk Factor, three Flame of Keld, and no Experimental Frenzies. Yeah, we've been riding the Experimental Frenzy train pretty much from day one here on the game podcast. 
But I see where you're coming from, just taking the turn off, spending four mana and having no immediate effect on the game. I mean, I mean, look, this format is not the same format we were playing a month ago, even a week ago. Everything changes on a week-to-week basis. And just because a card is incredible, which is a lesson that we harp on time after time here on the Game Podcast, just because a card's incredible in the moment doesn't mean it will remain incredible throughout the length of the format. Ooh, so is the the title of this podcast going to be Experimental Frenzy is Unplayable? Last time we did that, there were so many angry people. I don't want to be yelled at on Twitter again. Please don't do that. I, I just can't take it. My my soul isn't up to it at the moment. Yeah, people didn't like it very much, but... No, they didn't. Everything changes, like you said, and the value of certain cards goes up and down depending on the context of the format and what's going on. And right now... Golgari, especially in, in the post-board games, like they, they respected Experimental Frenzy to the point where they're keeping in Vivian Reed and stuff like that, which you would normally not expect people to do against this very low-to-the-ground aggressive deck, but they have to, you know? And they, they also expect you to board into this bigger plan with Rekindling Phoenix. So I, I saw some people playing Necrotic Wound uh, leading up to the Pro Tour, not so much at the PT, but that that's an answer to both of the Phoenixes. And people had Death Gorge Scavenger, so they could play that on turn three and then Chupacabra it or Vivian it or whatever on turn four and then eat it. And these cards are just these huge tempo black holes that you can't really afford to use against decks like Golgari because they're going to have a Carnage Tyrant or various Explore creatures and they're going to be trying to clock you. Like they're going to close the door as, as soon as possible and you just can't afford that sort of tempo negative thing like experimental frenzy is great against control where like the games will just go on forever and forever, but against Golgari and especially the is deck, like that's just not the case. Yeah. And I, I think especially when you're talking about what a successful Golgari deck looks like now, they all have clock. I mean, it's either like the four carnage tyrant package or they're pushing doom whisperer really hard, which is something that I know like Reed Duke, I think had three doom whisperers main. I think Matt Nass was on a bunch of doom whisperers for that reason. You don't want to sit and play a long game against these decks anymore because they find ways to kill you, be it, is it Drake's or the, you know, Boros aggro decks, all these decks, if you go too long, you're going to find a problem eventually. And it's better just to be able to close the game out once you've taken control. Yeah. And there, there are some matchups like the Boros decks where as the mono red player, you can actually play the control game and just try and pick off their creatures and not let them get any traction, play experimental frenzy and hope to work that and gain an advantage that way. But for the most part, frenzy is, is not great. And especially in the post board games, we needed something to actually be this sort of like card advantage tool or like something that did more than just you know, two mana, three damage, basically. And mm-hmm. Risk Factor was that card. Like, there there are so many decks that were leaning on Black Sweepers to combat the Boros decks, and granted, those decks didn't really materialize at the Pro Tour. I mean, the numbers might say differently, but Boros did kind of just, like, run over a bunch of people and obviously put six copies in top eight, won the, won the tournament and everything. And I imagine that that deck will be relatively popular going into GP Milwaukee and... Maybe now is the time when Golden Demises and Ritual of Sits and all that stuff will show up. But if those decks show up, then obviously Frenzy is good against them because they don't have a ton of answers. But Risk Factor is really where it's at. Yeah, the Risk Factor technology is something that has trended down recently. I, I think people, you know, first completely dismissed the card. Then people got really high on the card. And we've seen things kind of taper off over the last few weeks. But you returned to the card. Uh, and it sounds like you had good reason for doing so. 
Well, people got off it because they figured out that Frenzy was good. Mm -hmm. And then everyone figured out how to answer Frenzy. And just based on the matchup spread that exists right now in Standard, I mean, you want Risk Factor over Frenzy against Golgari and Izzet, but against control decks, like either these black control decks or Jeskai or something, you you just want both. You want as many as possible, and you even sign in Treasure Map in a lot of those matchups. So uh, Risk Factor is one of the things I think our, our deck did really, really well. And the, the other thing was just not playing any Rekindling Phoenixes and signing out Experimental Frenzies, just like not getting trapped by these kind of like flashy cards that look like they're supposed to be so good because they're not good in every single matchup. Yeah. Understanding the context and incredibly an important skill and attribute to have going into the pro tour here. I want to back you up for a second to kind of just the decision point when you said, okay, mono red is where I want to be because we talked last week and I, I think your words were that it would be almost disrespectful for someone to play the Boros aggro deck at this tournament, because it suggests that they don't anticipate their opponents will do the work and understand the matchup, which is clearly on the forefront of everyone's mind. Now we kind of have to pay the piper for that because well, there was a, a six top eight, six decks in the top eight that were Boros aggro ostensibly. So what's your response to that? I, I guess my bad. I don't know. Like when when those mocks results got published, I was just like, oh, we are in trouble and this is huge and things are going to change. And I expected everyone to be on that train, too. But I don't know what happened, man. I have no idea. I don't know why people did not respect this deck as much as they should have been. I mean, like I, I basically played a deck that checked it, you know, in mono red aggro while also trying to be good against everything else. And everyone else was just like, that's eh, fine. I'll play my deck from last week where the Boros deck just annihilates us. Like, I don't understand that. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's a very strange, strange thing to understand and justify. And in fact, in my article I wrote this week, I couldn't. I couldn't find a reason to say, here's why Boros was able to succeed. I put forth some theories. And that first theory I put forth was that maybe it actually didn't succeed, which is a weird, weird thing to say about a deck which put six copies in the top eight and comprised the entire semifinals and ultimately won the tournament. But if you start digging around into some of these stats that I've been scrap trawling for, there starts to be kind of a not so favorable picture of the Boros aggro deck being painted. What do you make of that? Well, Luis made the finals and his team's constructed win rate was 44%. Right. Right. Some of the best constructed players on the planet. Some of the best players on the planet, period. Right. And it, it just means that, okay, maybe Luis had reasonable matchups or he had better draws or, you know, he's he's beaten down before, right? He has top eights in Nagoya and Worlds in San Diego, I think, with white aggressive decks. I don't know. It's I, I can't really say like, oh, Luis is just white weenie master, right? Because Raptor 03'd and he's you know, maybe the most aggressive adjacent person on their team, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I would not expect everyone to have the same sort of record or schedule necessarily. I mean, maybe Raptor did just play against a bunch of people who were ready for him, right? And Luis didn't, or he did and also got a little bit lucky against them or whatever. I don't know. Uh, maybe maybe he outplayed them with uh, Savage <laughs> Legion's landing bluffs or whatever. Somehow, I don't think that was the case. No, uh, me, but, me either, me either. 
But uh, yeah, it's it's really hard to unpack what exactly went on with this top eight. And it's the story now. Like it it is the narrative of this tournament dominated by Boros Agro. And as we go through these decks and these stats, I just don't buy it, man. Like I, I think people actually did adequately prepare for the most part. Uh, certainly people who found success adequately prepared. And I, th- I think where you may have misstepped a little bit in your assessment was you talked about it being disrespectful to play something like, uh, I think, is it Drake's was the deck that you were just like, you can't play this dra- this deck anymore. It's not realistic. And you were right in previous configurations. And I think part of the equation that maybe got missed a little bit was the ability of all of these decks. And I don't want to limit this to, is it Drake's? I think this applies to Golgari. I think it re- applies to Mono Red, as you did. The capability that every single deck in Standard has right now to successfully adapt to what its opponents are doing. It it may be greater than it's been at any period in any standard I've ever played, honestly. All these decks have so many viable tools. It's really challenging to shortcut these discussions and still get to a place where you're presenting accurate information. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with that. I do think it is kind of weird where all these decks have these tools to adapt when you're kind of on rails to some degree. You yeah. know, where it's like you have you have the six viable decks, basically. It's like guilds plus mono red and you're kind of gated within that. But yeah, those those decks, even though they can't really change their their plan, a really like the Drake deck is still going to be a Drake deck. And maybe you can build an is it controlling deck, but that's just like another flavor of Jeskai, basically. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, I played is it Drake's. I tried to tune it. Obviously, I started with Fiery Cannonade, which is where I think a lot of people went and that wasn't cutting it. But maybe it is Murmuring Mystic and Entrancing Melody, which are cards I considered, but also just didn't really think would get the job done. But yeah, I, I did not put in the work to come to the sort of list that the Virens did, you know? Right. And I, I think that's the big takeaway is that there was... If you put in the work on any archetype, you probably got rewarded. When we're talking about the Viren's list, you know they did rely on a lot of cheap spot removal, and they appropriately accounted for the presence of this deck in the metagame now. It goes deeper than the Viren's as well, because if you look at the matchup data that I've seen, and this is not official Wizards data, this is data that people have garnered essentially by scraping this data and finding uh, what various people played and then running it, running the matchups against each other and, and letting that shake out. But data suggests that is it Drake's on the whole, as far as known lists go, is it Drake's put up a 61% win percentage in this tournament? That's, that's pretty crazy. That's a significantly better performance than I would have expected from is it Drake's going into this event. Right. And if you look at, each player's individual record, it's it's just very polarizing too, because right, you see right. you see the 10 O's, the seven threes, and then just like some O fours, right? And there's not a, there's not a lot of five fives or six fours or anything. So it is very much like whether or not you nailed it or didn't, because I mean, yes, is it Drake's can potentially steal some games against the Boros deck, even if their list is pretty bad, but for the most part, you need the tools. Right. And the the polarization points to exactly that. Here are the people who figured it out. Here are the people who did not. I wouldn't be surprised if most cases, the ones who figured it out were leaning on Melody. I think that was kind of the key card for breaking this matchup open. Yeah, I do too. Although Murmuring Mystic to help you stabilize also seems like a pretty big help. I agree. 
And I'm a, I'm a fan of Young Pyromancer, man. Even if you double the mana cost, that's fine. I'm, I'm kind of in. Yeah, I think it's a card when I saw Murmuring Mystic, it was like, this has got to be too expensive for Constructed. But again, context is everything. So it's it's got five toughness on the back end. So it's shrugging off this lava coil uh, epidemic we see going on right now. When the tokens you're making are trading for real cards out of your opponent's deck, that's a difference maker. Like when you're blocking their healer's hawk and trading one for one with your token, like then things start to get out of control very quickly and having access to any of that kind of effect, be it overcosted or not, uh, becomes much, much more impactful. It's also one of those types of cards that can just completely overpower an experimental frenzy. That's true. That's true. And that's an important angle to have in your game plan right now. So at the Pro Tour, I had two Fight With Fires and given the amount of Murmuring Mystics and likely a large influx of Wild Growth Walkers into the main deck... And, you know, people people probably won't skimp and play like two main, one board anymore. Like there are going to be the full four in these 75s. And that is definitely enemy number one out of the Golgari deck for for mono red. Like I, I would actually up it to three fight with fires going forward. Yeah, I, I buy that. That makes a lot of sense, given these these big these big butts that are floating around now. Yeah, and it also looks like the most successful is it strategy was Electromancer and not Enigma Drake. Surprising to some extent. I, I I think I expected things to go kind of a hybrid route going into this event. I thought maybe they'd be in combination with each other, but you're right. I, I think the ones that filtered to the top are ones that just didn't look to the smaller Drake in this case. And kind of cool to see like these lists, if you're looking among the, the 27 to 30 match point deck lists that Wizards published, these some of these lists aren't that far off from what we were doing two weeks ago, and they're still nah. finding success right now. <laughs> yeah, this is this is like the the OG stuff. This is straight Moto guy. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Beacon bolts and all. Right, right, and, and I don't think that's going to prove to be the optimal build going forward. But like you said, there's still a lot of power here, uh, a lot of room for success, even with you know a, a somewhat less tuned list. But I, I do think something like the Viren's list did a great job of actually adapting to a new metagame and presenting a new angle for the Is It Drake's deck. No, I do too. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not entirely sold on, you know, one Mirari conjecture or whatever, but it does seem like it's a big part of their controlling plan because they have a second copy in the sideboard and they had two main when they played at uh, GP Lil. So correct. Very, very interesting stuff. If you were not working on Golgari or Mono Red leading into Milwaukee. I would highly recommend working on Is It Drakes with Electromancer, no Enigma Drakes, and actually trying out these different plans to beat the White Red decks. Yeah, I would love to hear specifically how the Virens were sideboarding in several matchups because you see there's like there's almost too many good cards in a few spots. Like, do you think they relied on Star of Extinction against the white decks where they're trying to stall until nah. they can wipe at that point? It seems too expensive, it. right? Yeah, I, I highly doubt it. That's my instinct as well. But you could also see like you can pretty hard transform into a control deck that could potentially buy that kind of time. And maybe they just relied on getting a reset button later in the game. I, I don't know. I think it's unlikely, but I would love to know exactly how they viewed the matchup and what they were doing there. Yeah, me too. I know that... Pascal posted some stuff on Twitter, like people were asking for his his deck list and everything. And I don't know if he's going to write something or not, but I would I would be one of the first people to read it for sure. Agree, 100%. And then uh, we have 
Busan, who won GP Lil going eight and two with Mono Red, pretty much the same thing that they won the GP with, but no Lava Coils main deck, well, one Lava Coil main deck, and we just played the full four because of Wild Growth Rocker and all the Drakes and everything. So I, I think that's like the other huge thing where Wizards Lightning is fine. You have eight Wizards, but it is kind of like a high variance setup, especially against decks that have a bunch of shocks and whatnot where I just don't want to draw a bunch of that card and have all my wizards die. And Lava Coil is super important right now. It's interesting to me, one of the first things I thought of when looking at your deck list, making the decision to trim the Wizards Lightning versus trimming the Lightning Strikes. Because I I mean, like those two cards are doing the exact same thing. And Wizards Lightning kind of has like more upside, but also potential fail case. And I thought it was really interesting that you chose to take the more consistent of the two cards rather than the one that had a little bit more variance built into it. Well, Ifro said that he would prefer to just play six copies of Lightning Strike and no Wizards Lightnings. Okay. And I, I think that that is a, a realistic take to have because Lightning Strike, you always know what you're going to get. And it's yep. those games where you don't have a wizard and you do have uh, a Wizards Lightning and they get to stick either an Electromancer or a Wild Growth Walker or something. It just gets out of control. Like Lightning Strike is serviceable. It does do what you want. So why go with the high variance one? You know, like it will potentially cost you games, whereas the upside is really pretty minuscule. Yeah, it's an interesting statement on the difference of being able to cast the spell for one and the difference of having to cast it for three occasionally. Whereas like it does seem a little bit more devastating to in the situations you really require it, like you mentioned the Wild Growth Walker situation, just being completely shut out of the spell and then getting it for one on the upside really isn't worth anywhere near as much. Yeah, so what do we, what do we want to talk about now? We kind of covered Mono Red, kind of covered Is It Drake's. You want to talk about Golgari a little bit? Let's not bury the lead. Let's talk about the Boros deck before we get into Golgari. Okay, okay. Because obviously, like I said, this is the story coming out of this Pro Tour. And... There's a lot to unpack in regards to this deck's performance. Most data I have seen suggests this deck actually did not do all that well. And again, in my article this week, I posited that to me, it makes sense that the successful version of this deck would be a list that was tuned to beat the mirror. If people aren't respecting the breakout deck from the mocks appropriately and are either just playing it or you know, not adapting appropriately, then you can see under that kind of construct where it makes sense to just be like, okay, well, I'm going to get all the upside of playing this deck and I'm going to tweak a few cards to beat the mirror the way Luis did, the way they leaned on the life gain package and a Johnny's pride mate. But then you have their record, which was not all that great. So kind of where do you fall on this spectrum as to which of these decks was the correct version to play or was there no correct version to play in this tournament? Well, there's, there's so many different ways to build this where I think no matter what way you look at it, Heroic Reinforcements is probably a dud. Like that, that card just kind of fails for what this deck really wants to be doing. And like you would prefer to just play as many cheap spells in the first few turns as possible, right? And then maybe have a Heroic Reinforcements, but playing four copies with 22 lands, it's just kind of like a recipe for disaster. Yeah, to me, this deck is built on the redundancy of its one drops. That is what matters here. That's the key thing it's doing and what allows this deck to succeed at this point in time. There is a redundant amount of quality one drops in white, and there's a lot of payoffs for having a lot of one drops in your deck. 
Right. And heroic reinforcements is not necessarily where you want to be. And if you get to go healer's hawk into a Johnny's pride mate and get it up to four toughness and maybe dodge deafening clarion, like, I mean, that's kind of what the heroic reinforcements are there for, right? It's like, oh, like rebuild from a sweeper, get in some damage. But if you're just making this board state where you're just immune to all the things that they're doing. Like you don't need heroic reinforcements and then you get to keep a wider range of sevens because you don't have these awkward fours clogging your hand and everything. So yeah, I I think I like just slimming it down and building just a very good beatdown deck and just going from there. So I guess then having disqualified like heroic reinforcements versions, then we're back to the showdown that we saw in the finals with the Ajani's Pride Mate version versus just the super low to the ground uh, Ellen Bogan version. Where do you fall on on that kind of showdown? Eh, I'm, I'm down with Snowborn Sentry. I can dig it. It, it looked great in the matches, honestly. It, it was pretty impactful when it when it turned online. Like that's the big body that they were working a lot harder to get out of a Johnny's Pride Mate, and you can right. see like a Johnny's Pride Mate has a fail state for sure. Is it very impactful in some instances? Absolutely. And I guess you could say the same thing about Snubhorde Sentry to some extent, but like it's still turning on your Legion's Landing, and I think that's kind of the unsung hero of this deck. And where the real payoff lies was being able to kind of cheat on your mana base and play maybe a few fewer sources than you otherwise would have because you flip your Legion's Landing so reliably. And that's where the deck had its really powerful starts. Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about players playing three copies of Legion's Landing. It does just seem like one of your best cards, not close, especially if you're going the the Pride of Conquerors route and you want to play fewer lands and not play all the four drops and stuff. Like you said, mm-hmm. it just does allow you to cheat, which I think is huge. Yeah, I think so too. And your, you know, your card quality is not good. That's what this deck comes down to. It's it's about maximizing your resources and deploying threats quickly. And in that instance, I want to lean a little bit harder on my Legion's Landings for sure. It seems like one of the higher quality cards in the deck. Yep, absolutely. And I mean, it also makes two permanents for the City's Blessing, which I think is pretty huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then no matter what, I think this deck does want some amount of Experimental Frenzies and Aurelias in the sideboard. Like you, you do want to go up to some bigger stuff in post-board games but a Johnny is not really something I'm super high on. It depends. I mean, I, I think it depends how hard you're riding to Kotlian guard in instances where you don't have access to that card. Then I get not being as interested in a Johnny, but it's so key in your matchup against Golgari. And again, referring to data I've seen, I think the expectation was this deck was going to maybe fall to Golgari. And that was not the case. This deck actually beat up on Golgari somehow. So maybe a lot of that was based on Takatli Anagard, Ajani type stuff. Um, I, I know when Martin wrote his article on the deck over on Channel Fireball, he basically said the Golgari matchup is bad. Well, the data I'm looking at right now says that amongst, again, a, a limited sample size. This is a sample size of looks like 61 matchups. Red, white, aggro won 56% of those games. And certainly you can, you know, say small sample size, not a huge amount of variation there, but still it doesn't strike me as a horrible matchup. Red, white was generally winning things. And, uh, you know, maybe the Ajani to Kotli guard setups had a lot to do with that. Yeah, that's entirely possible. I mean, 
Honor Guard obviously does just kind of shut them down, but I think for the most part, you're just building a, a big board position and you're just kind of ignoring the stuff that they're doing with Merfolk branch walkers and whatnot. And then mm. post board, you have things like Baffling End to take care of Wild Growth Walker and your, your stuff is just eventually going to be big enough to pound through all of their creatures. So you don't necessarily care about that. You're mostly just worried about things like Fine Finality and whatever sideboard sweepers they have. Right. Right. I, I will say that Aurelia looked incredible all weekend. Every time it showed up on camera, even when yep. players didn't know it had Mentor, it still was impactful in those games, doing some really impressive stuff. So it's it's good to see that card kind of shine. Unsurprised that it took a deck not really leaning super hard on Aurelia and just using it as like a good magic card, not being all in on angel synergies or other such nonsense, just being like, look, there's good stats here, and I think this deck can take advantage of it. That proved to be exactly true. Yeah, five toughness and is another pseudo anthem for all of your dinky little creatures. Yep. Yeah, it definitely and did work. Has flying too, which is super huge in the mirrors. Yeah, yeah, flying was key in, in so many of the mirror matchups we saw. So where so does that going, leave you on this deck going forward? I, I That's the next question, right? Like, I, what I, I was about to, to ask do? you the same thing, man. Uh, well, I don't know. <clears throat> I, think, I think it's fine, but kind of what I was talking about last week, I feel like it's just on everyone's radar and should just be the target, especially if someone didn't see what the actual matchup data was. You know, if, if you just look at the top eight by itself, it's like, oh man, this deck crushed it. Like it's going to be everywhere. I have to play something that beats it. I think this strategy is inherently beatable. Uh, I think that people <laughs> certainly, if you did not get the memo going into the Pro Tour, you have gotten it now and you have prepared appropriately. And I think the technology is just out there. Like you can forgive not finding the technology going into the Pro Tour to make a certain archetype have a favorable matchup. You know, again, we talked about Drake's and not finding the pieces to make that matchup swing in your favor. Totally reasonable. There's only so much time in the day and you have to kind of choose where your focus lies. And I wouldn't fault any team for stepping away from Drake's and being like, nah, we can't make this matchup work. But once everything filters to the top and you look at these top deck lists, you see where the successful approaches lie and you see what the decks that succeeded in this field did to combat these decks. I think the blueprint's out there now. I don't want to be proven wrong twice in a row. I would expect red, white aggro, or excuse me, uh, Boros aggro not to do particularly well in Milwaukee this weekend. I I would hope so, but who knows? You who know, knows? maybe pe yeah. maybe people just run back mono carnage tyrant, no sweeper, no wild growth walker Golgari and just get stomped, you know? I hope not. I mean, I guess we should look at the other side of the equation too. We're talking about all this adaptability. Can red, white, do the same thing? Can Boros do the same thing and, and get to a new place where they shore up some of these vulnerabilities? I don't think so because their game plan, like their their plan A is play a bunch of Jackal Pups, right? Mm. And in order for you to be able to stick to that game plan, just at some point you have to give up that you, you might run headfirst into a Ritual of Soot or Golden Demise or whatever. And there's, there's not a whole lot you can really do about that. It's not like they're mono red and they can burn their opponent out. They don't have a ton of reach. You could do things like play experimental frenzy and, you know, more of these grindy cards, I guess heroic reinforcements is trying to do a little bit of that too. But I don't know, for the most part, if, if I were playing Boros, I would just be on the normal game plan 
probably Ellen Bogan's game plan in game one. And, you know, if they have a bunch of hate, they just have a bunch of hate. But you can kind of fix some of that stuff after sideboarding. Right. The cleanest adaptation, it seems like the Boros deck could make would be to get a little bit bigger and try and outsize some of this stuff. But we've played that deck before and it was bad. Like that's where the format started with bigger Boros decks. And it's hard to make that work. There's a reason these, you know, 18-1 drop decks eventually rose to the top and they're just better. They're, they're a more effective approach. They're better at getting your opponent dead, which is what this deck cares about. So I kind of agree with you. It doesn't seem like they have as much room for adaptability, but maybe there's a tricky sideboard plan out there. And, you know, a good sideboard plan changes everything. That's what it really comes down to. If you have effectively oh, yeah. figured out a sideboard plan that people are not accounting for or just unaware of, you you can find success with any archetype in this this standard format. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. The White Weenie deck and to some degree Mono Red Aggro, I do feel like you need to stick to a certain amount of cards. Like there, there's just maybe 25, 30 cards that can't change, but everything else is just on the table. You know, like the, the Drake deck, it's like, yeah, I want to play Shock Opt and some amount of Crackling Drakes or whatever, but anything past that is just up for grabs. Yeah, and that's, that's a nice bit of flexibility to have in your utility belt. But then that leads to a sort of decision paralysis, right? Where what are we supposed to be doing exactly? How are people actually going to react to this stuff? Are people actually going to play this white red deck or can you just hard target it? Or is just everyone going to play mono red because people like me and Efro said that it smashes the white deck, you know? I would expect there to be a lot of mono red at this tournament. I think you have a lot of credibility. I think that's usually how these things go in the post pro tour GPs is that someone figured it out and that person didn't necessarily win the tournament, but they have kind of the technology to beat whatever won the tournament. And a lot of people go in that direction. And I think your team seems to have figured it out. Uh, Very impressive results against these white decks. And I think a lot of people are going to follow that lead. Then, like you said, you get to the decision paralysis point where you go, well, if everyone's going to do that, what should I do to beat the mono red decks? And then you're kind of back to square one. But I I anticipate a good weekend for mono red, to be sure. I do feel like Golgari can be tuned to, to beat all these things, but I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. Well, that's what we've always said about Golgari, right? Nothing has changed, and it's the reason why it was the most represented deck in the entire field. 22%, I think, of all players showed up with Golgari. What's your takeaway from that? Uh, Obviously, you were not among them, but very talented and somewhat surprising names did make this decision. You know, I, I think you knew, like, Reed was going to show up with this deck. Probably he loves this style of deck construction and certainly is good enough to figure out the ways to beat whatever metagame they anticipate. So there's people who always default to this strategy, but I think a lot of other people picked up this deck too that I wouldn't necessarily have expected. Yeah, I mean, Matt Nass likes Llanowar Elves, but I would not expect to see him pairing his Llanowar Elves with Vraska's Contempt or whatever, you know, right, just right. Not, not really up his alley. But I, I do feel like Golgari is just the I don't know what to play button at least for the list that showed up at the Pro Tour. And going forward, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I could spend some time working on it. And with Wild Growth Walker and the two and three mana creatures not being great and you not having a ton of options in that regard, I, I feel like 
you're sort of beholden to that sort of explore package and you can't really get away from it. But then what can you do to help against these white decks other than just playing some targeted hate stuff like playing some main deck sweepers or something that would help you get to finality? In my my testing a little bit, it's like, yeah, the, the fog kind of seems cool if people are doing uh, Pride of Conquerors and pause or not pause for reflection, but Pride of Conquerors and heroic reinforcements. But yeah, pause for reflection could like buy you the time to get there. But that's that's a sideboard card, you know, and mm-hmm. there's there's no guarantee that that is actually good against their plan if they're getting you with experimental frenzy in Aurelia. So it is it is tough. Did you come across anyone at the Pro Tour who was just like, I played Golgaria, I love it. I think we absolutely figured out this metagame. Uh, it seems like we made the right choice. Anyone who's just over the moon about their choice to play Golgari? Jadine and Autumn seemed pretty high on their deck. And then after reading uh, Jadine's article today, I could kind of see how. I think they did a really good job of testing with a low amount of people and trying to figure out the right things uh, to learn in the amount of time that they had and everything. But yeah, at the end of the day, it was it was Golgari and maybe not focused as much on the Boros decks as they should have been. And then there were some some pretty good takeaways too, where they didn't have a whole lot of time to actually tune and update the decks that they were playing against. So they were playing against like these kind of like old stock versions that weren't really showing up at the Pro Tour. So right. that kind of cost them a little bit. But yeah, I, I think if they had uh, a few more people to share ideas with and stuff, you know, they could probably figure it out. Yeah, it seems like the people who are committed to this uh, style of deck have the tools available, and it's just a question of whether they get it sorted out in time. Uh, looking through the Golgari list that rose to the top of the format, you don't really see anything jaw-dropping. They're all kind of very small optimizations and very small decision points designed to get them the edge that uh, they ultimately found. The only like weirdo card I've seen is Reaver Ambush. That's it <laughs> out of the high-performing Golgari list. So it's, and we're, we're not revolutionizing the, the archetype here. Yeah, and I don't even like that over Necrotic Wound necessarily. So It depends on your setup. I mean, you can see points where it would be better, but I think you're right. Necrotic Wound is mostly going to get that job done in the times you want it to do it. And having the mana efficiency is very important for a deck like Golgari as well. So I think I'm with you there. I would go Necrotic Wound first. Yeah. One of the things that I'm seeing a decent amount on on Magic Online is this dinosaur deck that got third in the Magic Online PTQ. Right. Where in, instead of doing Golgari things, you're doing the, the same sort of thing, except with a Naya shell that has like deafening Clarions and Regisaur Alphas and stuff. And it's like, I don't know, maybe that's fine. I think that person is in our Discord. I'm, I'm pretty sure the person who got third is in our Discord and was talking about that deck a little bit. So maybe it's time to pick their brain a little bit and see what brought them to the dinosaur list. You know, big bodies seem good right now. We talk about the removal being sized. And now that we're targeting a specific metagame, it's it's very specific removal choices. And dinosaurs sidesteps a lot of those, to be sure. Yeah, you go you go bigger than Golgari or you go bigger quicker. You have Regisaur Alpha to give Carnage Tyrant haste. And you have Clarions for the aggro decks. Uh, you don't get to play cool stuff like Fine Finality, but you have Thrashing Bronton on, which is pretty solid against the white deck. And if the red decks are not playing Lava Coil main deck, it's just a huge stopper against them too. So I could see this as a place to potentially go. I also think you can just play Fine Finality in this deck pretty easily. And it's something that I mess <laughs> around with a lot. You know my affinity for yeah, Fine Finality yeah. splashes. Yeah, I don't know though. Is it, is it better than just 
playing Clarion, Clarion. like you actually no, need I, it? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. And and I think like especially as fast as the format has gotten, you can see the benefit in having a much lower to the ground sweeper, to be sure. Can you just play Plague Mare and Golgari? Like does it does it make your other matchups that much worse? I guess I just don't know if it makes your red white matchup that much better. There's a lot of draws that invalidate that fairly quickly, which are always scary. You know, sometimes it'll be a blowout. Don't get me wrong. It, it is going to be the best possible thing in a lot of spots, but other times it's going to do absolutely nothing. And that's a little scary. Yeah, maybe it's just worse than playing Ritual of Soot, which can actually catch you back up in the Golgari Mirror, especially against the Druid of the Cowl versions. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. So yeah, other than really heavily targeting them with your sideboard and, you know, sideboard slots are at a premium. I feel like a couple rituals and cast downs, no carnage tyrant is probably the way to go. Yeah, I, I like Doom Whisperer a lot. Uh, the flying body is a big deal. Carnage tyrants for the mirror, Doom Whisperers for everything else. And I mean, like, I expect Golgari to trend downwards into this week. But I expected that at the Pro Tour, and I kind of expected that the week before, and it just doesn't go anywhere. It stays nah. at like that 22 percentage threshold every single event, it feels like. Yeah, it is weird. No, like I said, it is just the I don't know what to play button. Right. And it's a good one at that. I mean, you get the consistency of the explore creatures and very powerful spells. So I don't want to trash anyone who's falling on Golgari as their go-to archetype. I think that's totally fine. Uh, it just doesn't feel like it's on the cutting edge in most instances. Yeah, and I agree with that. I just think you need to have better plans, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I have some Tyrants for this matchup, some Midnight Reapers for this matchup, and uh, (laughs) maybe I'll play four Wild Growth Walkers instead of two or whatever. But it's like you can't do that and hope that just all of your cards line up, you know? Yeah, old classic mid-range problems, to be sure. I wonder if Is It Control is a thing that we can go back to because Arclight Phoenix has got to be a thing that people are siding out against Boros, right? I hope so. I, I think there's a lot of spots to side out Arclight Phoenix, which people were somewhat hesitant about at first. I, I think we've grown past that at this point. But my guess is that if is it control is good, having the Drake set up in game ones might just be better. But I would have to check my work on that. That could prove false. Yeah, being able to sidestep like that is always super powerful. And that's basically what all these Drake decks are doing anyway. But I don't know. Nimizit just did not get enough love at this PT. And I think the format's a little too fast for it maybe right now. But people have certainly moved off of the Eldest Reborn. And I, I think rightfully so. You know, slow cards like that are just not very good right now. Right, right. Agreed. And I mean, I guess we could transition to talking a little bit about control now. This seems like kind of our last stop on this tour of the metagame right. and its its top participants. It seems like it's getting mixed reviews. Some data points to it having done uh, above average and being one of the best choices. The spreadsheet I'm looking at now, which I think is a little bit more complete than some of the other data I've seen, has a little bit lower win percentage for control, the lowest out of kind of the big five archetypes. So it's hard to know what to take away from that. It seems like control did really well against other known archetypes and maybe a little bit worse against the broader field, weird things like mono blue and uh, other decks that didn't really have large numbers of representation. But I think control is answering a lot of the same questions as Golgari, where you have to kind of nail your deck list and you have to be doing 
the right thing at the right point in time. Obviously, this seemed like a fine tournament for Deafening Clarion. I think it also seemed like a fine tournament to use Deafening Clarion in combination with Drake's. I think you wanted that life gain and you know the fast clock, again, very, very important. But going forward, I don't know. I, it feels like maybe the thing you were targeting with control is starting to fade a little bit. And that leaves me a little bit more worried about Control's position going into this next step of the metagame. Yeah, you you basically have to nail it with Control. And you look at the people who did well, it's like, okay, Wafotapa went 8-2. Mm-hmm. Shocker. Yep. Shota, Shota went 7-3 with Grixis, which I, I think his list was pretty cool. He had three Doom Whisperers and I think three Nicobolas. So uh, he knew what he was doing as far as uh, trying to clock it and Mono Red and stuff like that. Uh, Greg Orange went 7-3 with Jess Guy. That should be no surprise. Everyone else, I don't know. It just It seems like there's a lot of 4-6s, a lot of 6-4s. Like, you're just kind of like spinning your wheels a little bit with Jess Guy. And I don't know. I, this is this is one of those times where I'm going to sound like uh, I just hate control, period. Uh, even though I was, I was kind of high on Jess Guy a few weeks ago. But like, the format has sped up. And... I like the Crackling Drake approach. I love Deafening Clarion at the moment, but I really, really don't like Chemistry's Insight. Yeah, and that's what we're relying on here as our draw engine. And it's tough to give up your your four-drop spot. I don't know what the answer is to that. It's really the only effective card draw floating around. You can do like Divination stuff, but that's not going to work out. You need to use your three-drop slot more proactively. Uh, I'm seeing increased syncopates, which is something that seems important with a faster format. So that's good to see. I don't know what my takeaway is when it comes to control. I like the look of Waffle Tapa's list a bunch. I think Cleansing Nova is kind of underrated as a sweeper right now and does more than people anticipate hitting artifacts and enchantments against the red decks. I mean, your plan is like experimental frenzy treasure map stuff. Oh, yeah. So that's a really nice card to have against red decks. Uh, We talked a bunch about Star of Extinction cleaning up the green black deck. So the tools are there. It's just like you have to have them in the right numbers and in the right place in your 75. That's equally as important. Like how many game ones can you really afford to give up? It's a tough question to answer. Agreed. Uh, you see a lot of these lists too, specifically at the Pro Tour, going like lower and lower on Teferi too, which should be one of the reasons to want to play a deck like this. Yeah. But but it just isn't. The battlefields are so cluttered at all times and it's very difficult to actually clean up everything. And Teferi just ends up being... A little too slow, you know? Yeah, it's it's weird that Teferi is a bit of a liability. And to the same token, Search for Azkanta is just like gone. It's almost yeah. gone from the metagame. And this combination, it'll be really interesting to see what the next set brings. Because obviously we're getting beyond Hollowed Fountain, we're getting a bunch of Azorius cards without a doubt. So I, I want to see if this combination can kind of take its rightful place on the throne again, because this is this is modern level stuff. We see it all the time in the blue-white control decks over in modern. This is high quality cardboard, and uh, it's, a, it's a little shocking to see how far these cards have fallen. Well, they don't they don't have all their dual lands. They don't have all their their Azorius cards, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it does kind of make sense where you're relying on last season's cards for your power level but also the just some of the the guilds for the season have lent themselves to more aggressive decks so 
Right. You know, Teferi can't necessarily compete. I think it would be hilarious if on the heels of Teferi, Azorius is just like a bunch of creature oriented stuff. I think that would just be <laughs> like evasive combat and that's it. Yeah. That would be funny. Yeah. That would just make me happy. Is, is but, it too early to be excited for the next set already? Like this set has been so awesome that I should probably just be basking in this and not already being like, oh, I wonder what's in Azorius and what's Simic going to look like? I am already thinking about these things and getting excited, but probably should focus on what's at hand right now. No, I'm, I'm certainly curious, but I also think that the next Pro Tour might be modern. So it's kind of moot for me to get super excited. Yeah, yeah, it's a little, I don't know what to make of that. A modern Pro Tour is important. I, I think there has to be one. I don't know. With six, it seems like maybe you could find a better spot for one. It could be one of these yeah. late in the season pro tours. I don't know. I'll I'll reserve judgment on that for the time being. Maybe there's a bunch of explosive modern stuff that'll be really interesting. But uh, yeah, I guess that's a little sad. I, I certainly have enjoyed the buildup to this pro tour immensely. And while I still stick by my point that an earlier in the format pro tour would be the best version of it. This was still a great pro tour. There was so much to take away, so many interesting things to see. Uh, I enjoyed both the lead up to it as far as metagaming goes and the aftermath of it. I think it's a really interesting aftermath to assess. How closely have you looked at Shota's deck list? Not super closely. Why? What What? What are you in love with over there? <laughs> so I, I distinctly remember three Nicol Bolas, three Doom Whisperer, right? And then there, it's just like two ofs all the way down, except for four Moment of Craving, and then uh, one Golden Demise, two Ritual of Soot. So Shota is very clearly aware that Adanto Vanguard is a thing, right? And these these white decks are going to be a thing. Right. And yeah, there's just like no real engine card. There's two Chemister's Insights, one Search for Escanta, two Disinformation Campaigns, which is whatever, you know? <laughs> this but is wild, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He is, he is very much prepared for white aggressive decks, which... You know, it, it just makes sense to me. It's like you cut all the engine cards, you play sweepers, you just play big threats and try and win the game that way because they have, what, two Conclave Tribunals to beat a Doom Whisperer, you know? Right. Shota's just amazing, honestly. Like, very clearly has plans that only he can decipher from every single deck he brings to the table and, you know, find success every single tournament. And then everyone picks up his decks afterwards and just falls flat on their face. And I that's tried it. I don't recommend it. It doesn't work. It, it doesn't. And that's not to say these are not great decks. Like that's not belittling what he's done. It's that he knows like every card has specific meaning for Shoda. It, it's supposed to do a very specific task. He knows that so well that us idiots pick them up and just completely mishandle them all over the place. It, it, it's really incredible. One of my favorite, favorite players to watch without a doubt. What are you going to do with with one beacon bolt? You know, who knows? Who knows are, what are you, you do? <laughs> Only Shoda knows what you do with one beacon bolt. Oh man, yeah, his his deck is great. If if for no other reason, then it actually looks like he respected the white decks. Right, respect. Right. But yeah, not a fan of Jess guy. Uh, if you want to play Crackling Drake, Niv Mizzet, Clarion, that's cool. I support that. Maybe two Teferi, maybe two Chemisters Insight, sure. But you can't be doing the the full-on like i'm not gonna do anything control deck you just can't sad times but i agree with you you know that's my favorite style of control deck but obviously i I think you're exactly right you you need proactive plans uh i was (laughs) i was finishing up a league that i started with just guy control in 
the couple days leading up to the pro tour and it was just like i just want to get to my third win and drop because mm-hmm. i think i was i was two and one and i was playing against this grixis deck and i i realized very quickly that i i basically pulled a u and did very did like removed all the win conditions from my deck effectively like i had four to fairies and two expansion explosions plenty that's all you need <laughs> <laughs> I used I used the first expansion to force through my Teferi against Grixis, right? Uh-huh. And obviously that just doesn't do anything because they have a million ways to kill it. All right, Contempt. And up. Right, Contempt, Eldritch Reborn, whatever. And then I used the, the other explosion to just like draw six cards when they were tapped out. And then it, they still just ran me out of Teferi and so I just lost. <laughs> yeah. I've been there, I promise. I have, I have experienced the no Teferi's left in my deck death. And, uh, I couldn't. I couldn't play like one crackling Drake. Like really? No, nope, no room for that. Can't fit it. What the? Heck? I won. I won the post board games, but still, it was just like I. I know exactly what I was doing when I was building that deck, and I'm just like, yeah, I'm not going to play any win conditions. I'm just going to have all these revitalizes. They'll never be able to kill me, and it just doesn't work, man. Only in very specific instances, but yes, you have to you have to pick your spots with those kind of strategies very wisely. Yeah, it was not great, but. I don't know. Uh, for Milwaukee specifically this weekend, I th- I think I would play mono red, but I would not be upset with playing something pretty close to Pascal's Drake deck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I then, would be leaning towards Drake based both on experience and the fact that I, I think he's done a very good job with this deck list. My deck list would look very similar. And then past that, would would not play the white deck, but I said that last week and, you know, was basically very wrong, so... Yeah, well, I, maybe the jury's still out on that. It's hard to say. I, one more archetype I want to bring up that we haven't touched on and kind of falls just outside of this big five, but it, it's the only other archetype besides Mono Blue, but let's just cast that off for the time being, that showed up in these uh, top performing deck lists, and that's Selesnia Tokens. What do you think about that deck list as it stands right now? I think you're running into a lot of the same hate for the Boros deck, and I guess the goal is to like go a little bit bigger than Boros and maybe beat him that way, but it just doesn't seem like a viable strat. Like if you're trying to do exactly that, then you should just be doing something that's actually like a hard check to it, like Mono Red. I guess it's 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 eye catching that, and I apologize if I mispronounce either of these names, but Kenta Harane and Teruya Kakume played yep. the exact same seventy five of Selesnya tokens, both to eight two records. They're both uh, masters, though. They're they're stone-cold masters. I believe that, but that extends to deck building as well. And, you know, maybe there's something here under these green-white uh, archetypes. And look, we just talked about how Fiery Cannonade is no longer effective against... It's certainly not effective against Mono Red. Never was. I know a bunch of people were using it there, I think mistakenly. But it's not really effective against these Boros aggro decks either anymore. But it is effective against this deck. And when everyone has decided to give up on Fiery Cannonade, there, maybe there's a soft spot for a strategy like Tokens to step in and, and leverage an advantage a little bit more, use the army in the can stuff more effectively, do what like heroic reinforcements is supposed to do out of the Boros aggro lists and have a, a way to overcome these sweeper effects. I'm not giving up on Cannonade. If I'm playing Mono Red, I'm playing some Cannonades. You can't stop me. Well, I mean, you kind of have to. You're you're priced into them, but there's yeah. there's other options out of other decks where they're able to walk away from them, and I think successfully. From the is it side of things, I don't think you care because their deck is slower. Like, yeah, you don't have cannonades, and you can't 
deal with a march really but you can just kill them with drakes i think that's still just a fine plan uh yeah i mean it depends i, I don't know i don't have a good feel for this matchup i've played it a bunch of times it feels like it often hinged on a fiery cannonade at an appropriate time to kind of steal back the initiative so i don't really have a theory as to how the matchup plays out without without access to that card uh, it's hard for me to just look at the lists and guess on that because a lot of the cards are individually powerful and problematic for the Drake's deck to deal with. Like you said, if you get on board quickly, uh, that's good. But these these are the slower versions, right? Like you're walking away from the maximized velocity type things, barring really explosive arc light starts where you get to put two or three Phoenixes in the graveyard right off the bat and then just go off. Uh, this deck generally sets up a little bit longer than the other uh, smaller Drake versions so I, I don't know. I don't know where this matchup falls yet. I, I do think it's interesting that green-white found some success. And again, data I've seen points to a pretty good success rate for this Lesnia Tokens deck. That's true, but a, a lot of the stuff that you were just describing, while accurate, I think falls into the same category as Experimental Frenzy, where, yeah, if the game goes long, you're doing all these big things. But realistically, that's not going to happen, right? Like, you're going to have to beat Carnage Tyrant and Doom Whisperer and all these other things and more explosive white draws and Chain Whirler and everything, even just an eight power Crackling Drake. It just doesn't seem like that strat is super viable right now. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, these the deck lists in particular have a lot of good outs to these big flying beatdown creatures. There's Corel Harpooner, there's Vivian Reed, Nullhide Ferex can trade with big beatdowns coming from something like Carnage Tyrant. So it, it seems like there are good options in this particular list. I, I just have to claim ignorance and not knowing the matchup well enough. And I, I'll probably play some games with this deck this week just to figure out exactly what's going on here. Ferox in their sideboard is definitely very ex exciting. Mm -hmm. I do like that aspect of it. I think that that is potentially something that Golgari could utilize too. Huh, that'll be interesting to see. I mean, no idea if it's actually good or not, but if you're Druid of the Cowl into... Doom Whisperer. I mean, I, I Nullhide Ferox just seems like another card that you could use against Mono Red or Control Decks and have it actually be pretty strong. I mean, if I'm trying to set up with like Frenzy and Treasure Map and stuff as the Mono Red player, and you, you just play get a six Ferox. six. Yeah, yeah, you're dead. It's yeah. game over. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the future. And then you play against Shota and he disinformation campaigns you, and just that is. Yeah, yeah, that's always good. <laughs> All right, are we, are we got a question for this week. We do have a question. So Fayason wants to know, after seeing the player of the year playoff format, do you think there's potential in high level magic for best of X formats featuring multiple decks or is best of five or best three out of five with sideboarding clearly superior? What's your takeaway after seeing this, this playoff format? Maybe it is uh, a factor of the standard format as it currently stands. But it seemed like if you're not playing with sideboarded games, the best thing to be doing is to play aggressive decks because you can't really get punished and then you just goldfish the opponent. And I think both players were kind of doing that. And I think the format has a chance to be cool, but it, it probably needs some help or some tweaking or something because if you're just like, all right, mono blue, mono white, mono red, let's go. That doesn't seem compelling to me. Right. I think this particular instance of this style of playoff didn't really work all that well for exactly the reason you're describing. But I'm not sure why we gave up on sideboards in the first place. Like doing this exact same thing with access to sideboards seems like a great way 
to decide the player of the year. And I get it's much longer, but look, it's the culmination of an entire year's worth of magic to claim a title that only a couple handfuls of people have claimed in the entire history of the game. So I'm willing to sit and watch them play for six hours to figure out who gets this title because they played for 12 months to get to this point. And that's totally acceptable to me. Now, granted, I have complete freedom to assign you know, broadcast teams to do whatever I want in this scenario. And I'm sure that's a <laughs> consideration, but I don't think the failings here are a knock on using this conquest format. I think it just speaks to how important sideboarding is in magic for regulating the metagame and for making the best potential version of the game. Best of ones are not what magic is meant to be. And one of the best things about magic is access to sideboarding. If you've dabbled in other competitive card games without access to a sideboard, you know how limiting it feels. Back when I was playing uh, a bunch of competitive Pokemon a few years ago, that was the one thing I couldn't get over. It felt very strange to not be able to adapt you know, mid-match and kind of hollow in a lot of ways. It felt a lot more like guesswork and a lot more like just playing metagame percentages and sideboarding is huge in magic. Very important. I think that's where this particular playoff misstepped, but I would love to see it again, just with the inclusion of sideboards. I think wizards doesn't do a great job in actually asking the players what they want, hmm. where in, in this specific instance, right? Where it's like only two players or in the case of worlds and being the two dead formats, like they never even were like, Hey, is, is modern cool? You know, because I think that, no one really wants to watch or play this format. Is that legit? And it's just like, yeah, sure. I think a lot of people would have been like, cool. But for this specifically, you're you're talking about, yeah, this is 12 months of a, a, a culmination. And do you really want this to just be done in a bunch of like high rolling aggro mirrors, right? Like that, it just doesn't seem like that's a good way to determine what player of the year is or who it, who it is or who earned it or whatever. Yeah, and, and in retrospect, this was the only possible approach to this format, right? Like, it's, it's what you had to do. It was almost strictly correct. Right. Like, why, why would you play Jeskai Control or Golgari, which are two decks that lean super heavily on their sideboard and right. being able to take out bad cards and bring in good ones and stuff? It's like, yeah, you can try and actually get the good matchup or whatever, but realistically, you should just be playing all the beatdown decks and just hope that you do your thing better than your opponent does. And then at that point, it's like, well, does this really determine who was, you know, the better player this year? I don't think so. Yeah. An unfitting close to the season is is my takeaway. I appreciate the willingness to try something new. I'll say that. Me too. It's it's certainly better than uh, like unified sealed deck or what, not unified, but where they, they both get the same sealed deck, or I guess they got different sealed decks, whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, this was this was a, a step in the right direction, but a little stumble on the execution and maybe one that should have been obvious. That's what kind of stinks about it, is that once you think about it a little bit and realize this is the potential outcome that makes sense, it's pretty easy to adjust. Like, just get sideboards in the mix. And I, I don't think you know, I joked about the time consideration being a thing. I don't think that's fair to the players to be like, look, we need to determine a player of the year and we need to do it in three hours. And I'm not stay, staying here for a second longer than that. Like, that's not fair given the amount of effort they have put in. And there should have been a more satisfying conclusion. Yeah. Or at the very least, just ask the players what they would prefer. You know, like, sure. what if you just do best three of five matches in different formats? You know? Right. 
the SCG Players Championship did that for their finals. And I think people liked that. I think it was cool. And I think the players, especially since it's Seth and Luis, I think that they would both prefer to just have Player of the Year be decided by a lot of Magic being played, you know? Right, right, yeah. Turns out Magic players love Magic. Who knew? Most of them. Most of them. Right. That's game. Good luck.